Welcome to My Life, Chassidah Supplied, episode 458. This program is sponsored by HealthyInside.net in honor of Dr. Josh Schwartzbaum's birthday. May we all find the light within ourselves and let it shine out to the world. HealthyInside.net So we're coming to the last days of Tammuz, the month of Tammuz which lead into the month of Av, Rishchei in the middle of this week, the beginning of the nine days that follows the, the beginning of the three weeks. So the three-week period we know began on the 17th of Tammuz, concludes three weeks later exactly to the day on the 9th of Av, the 17th of Tammuz, marked by the tragic events that happened then, and one of the prominent ones was the the breaching of the wall around Jerusalem, and three weeks later, the destruction of the temple, the first temple and the second temple, by the Babylonians and the Romans, respectively. And hence, we remember and commemorate that every year. That during this period, we don't do weddings, others, other unnecessary celebrations. It's a time, a somber time, a sad time. But as we discussed also last week, the sadness is not an end in itself is to recognize that we live in an imperfect world, in a broken world, just as the wall was breached and as the tablets were broken, and it's our job is to repair. And the destruction of the temple is seisa menas livnes in order to create a far greater and more and permanent one in the coming, with the coming of Mashiach and the rebuilding of the third temple. So that's the period we're in right now, which reflects in our personal lives. The first question obviously is, what do we learn from these days? It reflects in our own life because as the Sefer Yitzirah says, the book of formation that many attribute to Avram Avinu, which is built on Olam Shana Nefesh, that everything in existence is space, Olam, Shana, time, and Nefesh, man, the soul. So whatever exists in time exists in space, and whatever exists in time and space exists in each one of us. So in this time period, what does it reflect within us? It reflects the breaks in our own internal lives, the traumas, the challenges, the difficulties, the fears, the insecurities, the dissonance, the dissonance, that after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, which then set in motion and triggered a whole series of events, ultimately leading to the sin of the golden calf, and all forms of displacement and dissonance, we were not connected to our very purpose, which is the root of all issues, the tzimtzum, so that's what this three-week period is in, t- in time. What is it in space is what happened in Jerusalem and Israel. And what is it in Nefesh, Elam Shana Nefesh? It's within us, that period, that experience, with the knowledge that the purpose of it all is to elicit and draw out from us, evoke from us even deeper strengths. And when we do that, then we transform the negative energy. We transform and we use the negative energy as a springboard, a catalyst that leads us to be able to create far greater joy because when we transform darkness into light, when we transform our challenges and our difficulties into opportunities that actually can change our lives and change the world around us. What is called the transformation of transforming darkness into light, the greater light that comes from the darkness which we see, we see in, in human psychology that when we're faced with a challenge and we dig deeper, 
then we become not, we're not just back to square one. We achieve a level of greatness and refinement that's far greater than what we were in the beginning, like the example, being the, 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 like the, like the expression in the Talmud that says, B'mokim shabalit shuva emdim, tzaddikim gemurim en yechelim lamed sham. Yechelim lamed sham even. That a place where balat shuva reaches, after they've gone through darkness, like he explains in chapter 7 in Tanya, because they experience deeper thirst because of their, of their being impoverished, so that that deeper thirst creates a deeper passion and a deeper avarabha, greater love for light, for the appreciation of, of holiness, of godliness. And that is a place where tzaddikim, who never tasted the darkness, who never experienced it, cannot reach. Not just they don't reach, they cannot reach. Mashiach comes, it says, that Mashiach will also give that quality to tzaddikim. So we see the power of so-called setbacks or darkness or difficulties that only creates a bigger vacuum that can then be, when it's filled, can create far more intensity, like a dam that impedes the flow of water, but the water only builds up with even greater intensity as a result of the impediment. So that's the brief lesson. Now, of course, in this itself, there are levels. So you have the three weeks, so basically starting from the 70th of Thomas, and it only intensifies as we go into the nine days, where they become even more intense, with the conclusion of the, the ultimate Tisha of the saddest day, the day when the destruction actually happened, but it's also the day when Mashiach is born. So while you also have destruction within the, in the, in the abyss, in the throes of the fires that were consuming the base of Midrash, Mashiach was born. Which also explains another thing. Interesting, the beginning of the nine days, Rosh Chedesh of is Rosh Chedesh. But it's a Rosh Chedesh that is a diminished moon, but not just a diminished moon, a diminished Malchus in the language of Chesidus, and a fila of Malchus experience ultimate in an ultimate impoverished state, which is the destruction of the temple, the exile, the Golas of Knesset Israel, of Malchus, of the Jewish people. And, um, and that's why the 15th of Av, the full moon, is such a great holiday because it's the Aliyah that comes after such a Yerid. So you would think Rosh Chedeshav, beginning of the nine days, so indeed it is a very sad day, but it's an interesting thing, Magdim Rafur Lamaka, that God also precedes the illness with a cure. Whose yard side is Rosh Chedeshav? Arna Koyen. Arn, who represented Shalom, like the, like the Mishnah says in Pirkeyovis, Hillel says, You shall be from the students, the disciples of Arn. Oyev Shalom, Oyev Shalom, Varedev Shalom. Love peace and pursue peace. Shalom we know is not just peace, not just the absence of war, it means wholesomeness, completion. The fullest sense, Shalom is a, is a very high state and then he continues, Love all the creatures, even if they're nothing but, uh, even if you don't see any quality but being a creation of God, that's already enough reason to love them as the Alter Rebbe emphasizes in Tanya chapter 32, Lev. Chapter love, on love, on love, on Avis Yisrael. So even if that, and Mekarvan Leteira. So what did Adam represent? Achdus. Ava, unity, love, unconditional love. That's why it says, Vayifku kol Yisrael, that all the children of Israel cried 
all the all the people of Israel, not just the not just Bnei Yisrael, all of them cried and wept and mourned Aaron's passing because he brought shalom to everyone. Moshe obviously was also a tremendous force of shalom, but by Aaron was specific because he was on a ground level. He would go over to people and actually make peace. He he dealt with the people on their level. Moshe was more mamayl lamata shushbina de malka. He represented the Mela, the king. In the language of Kabbalah and Chassidus, he represents the Matanisa, the queen, the Jewish people. And that's what Rishchideshav. So Rishchideshav gives us, builds in the cure before the illness. What was the cause for the destruction of the temple? Sinas baseless hatred. So here we have the beginning of the nine days. On one hand, yes, we remember the sad events, but we also know An was Yartzeit. And on a Yartzeit, like he explains in the Geras this is the day when the Aveda, all the service, all the work, all the special work of the person who passed, whose neshama elevates on that day, is, is Eila goes up above and also brings down and draws down Pael Yeshua's Beket of Aretz, affects salvations and redemptions Beket of Aretz in the abyss, in the darkness of this world, in the depths of this world. So that's what, so we have again the paradox of the nine days. So as we go into the nine days of Shkhedeshov, we have this power the power of An that helps us counter all the negative forces. And ultimately, when you bottle Asiba, bottle Mesubav, you eliminate the cause for the destruction, it eliminates the effect. God can reside among us when we're united. Our Father blesses us when we're all one. An brought that unity, which is the repair and the tikkun and the healing for the disunity that caused the destruction of the temple. The lesson to us is very clear. The addition of Avas Yisrael, of unconditional love for every person, to the point of unity, of Achdus, unconditional. And this specifically through increasing in charity, in Tzedakah, the study of Torah that unites, and the, and the performance of mitzvahs in general, and specifically Tzedakah. That's the ultimate unifying force. Of course, the learning of Ilchus Beis Abchira, the laws of the Beis Amidish in the Rambam, in Misach Tamidus in Shas, and Yecheskel in, in Tanakh. In addition, the Rebbe emphasizes that in the nine days, every possible way we can create more joy, which is permitted up Yalachim, we should do so. So we make a siyum every day, the Rebbe suggested. Pekud Hashem Yisharim Esam Chilev. A siyum is a simchose shel shel by finishing the teira. So the Rebbe Rashab made siyumim, but he didn't eat meat. Because the point is to add in simcha. That's the main thing, the simcha of teira. So we see we do everything possible to tap into and to actualize the powerful, powerful energy in this black hole called the nine days. As we know, a black hole has a tremendous amount of energy. Except it's inverted. It's so powerful, the gravitational pull, that it doesn't allow light to come forth. But that doesn't mean there isn't tremendous power. So we tap into that power, we actualize, we unleash that power by doing all these things that are teta, that are permitted and allowed in Teta during these days to transform them indeed to a time of the coming of Mashiach. Why is it specifically nine days? Well, if you're familiar with the Sefer Yitzir I mentioned before, Sefer Yitzir also makes another statement. It talks about Esa Sfiris Blima, 
Ebishta created ten spheres without substance. Eser Veleitesha, Eser Veleyachad Eser. Ten, and not nine, and ten, and not eleven. I once wrote an article after 9-11, and 9-11, which was another destruction of a terrorist attack here in New York, and other parts of the United States, 9-11. Because when it's missing Malchus, Malchus creates the full cycle of ten. You know ten is the number of Gedusha, the minion, ten. On ten there's a particular level of Shechina that rests. That's Chochmah through Malchus, the ten spheres. But if it's nine, or if it's eleven, if it's an extra one, is less if you don't add, call the more you, when you, by adding, you're subtracting actually, and definitely don't diminish. The destruction of the temple was a destruction of Malchus that now needs to be rebuilt. So it's nine. So the nine days represent the lack of Malchus in psychological terminology, spiritual terminology, the lack of dignity. You can have all the faculties work, you can be a brilliant scholar, have Chabad, you can have emotions, but if you're lacking dignity, dignity is the dignity that we were created in the divine image, and that we're living up to the divine image, and we live in unity with each other, with unconditional love, that's dignity, that's Malchus. So the nine days signify the lack of the tenth, and our job is to rebuild it. Similar idea speaks about Aser Simei which, by the way, is a continuation of the nine days because when Moshe was up on the mountain praying for the Jewish people after the, golden, the, the sin of the golden calf, it was ultimately the last ten days were the ten days of Tshuva from Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and that's when he was granted forgiveness. And indeed, that's what it says. The ten days of Tshuva is the rebuilding of Malchus. And where do you see Malchus being somewhat, um, Malchus being compromised? Machus being violated because of the golden because of the sin of the golden calf, the breaking of the tablets that resulted from it, and all the other negative things, the destruction of the temple, all the lack of malchus of dignity of pride, including the bechila deiris when the meraglim incited the Jewish people against Eretz Yisrael again, lack of in Yankiva pride. God said you can go into the promised land. Eretz Yisrael is the level of malchus. So all these were violations and a form of breaching Malchus itself. And as a result, we need to fix and repair that with bringing back Malchus. The Malchus de Kite, the, 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 the dignity, the majesty of a neshama, the majesty of a human being, the majesty of the Beis Amigdash, the majesty of the Kfredish al-Kadosh Baruch in this world. Okay. So... So that covers the nine days. I would also refer you to previous episodes where I spoke about this. This is already now in the 10th year of my life, Chassidus Applied. So if you go to chassidusapplied.com, you could see the archives. And I've obviously spoken about many of these themes. But every year, always tries to add something new. But if you want more elaborate discussion, just go back to chassidusapplied.com and look at previous years on these topics. This coming Shabbos is also the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. So it's called Shabbos Chazayin. It's the Shabbos always Pasha Dvarim. We begin reading the fifth book of Teda, which of course is connected to all these themes that we're discussing. So let's go into that. We live with the times. Lessons from Pasha Dvarim and Shabbos Chazayin. So let's begin with Shabbos Chazayin firstly. Shabbos Chazayin is called that way because the Avteira of this coming Shabbos is Chazayin Shayo, the vision of Yeshaya. 
when you read on, you see the vision. It's not exactly a positive vision. He's prophesizing the vision of the destruction. But at the conclusion of it, of the Avteda, we say, that Zion will be redeemed through Mishpat, through Halacha, through Teda, and its captives will be redeemed through Tzedakah. Famous of Lady Yitzhak by Ditchevez Vart or Taylor, the Rebbe would bring it every year when he would speak on Shabbos Chazain from the name of Rab Hill Paracher, whose yard size actually these days as well, Yud Aleph of, Tafresh Chavdalat, he passed away. So Rab Hill brings that the baby Yitzhak by Ditchevez Taichas Chazain from the word to see. Not just the vision of Yeshaya, he says it, that this Shabbos Chazain, before Tishabov, every Jew is shown Chazain is shown from a distance a vision of the Besami the Shashlishi, the third temple, in order to elicit Gaguim yearning and longing for the temple so we will do everything possible to do tshuva and repair our ways so we can have the temple. Basically the yearning for Malchus that we've been discussing. And he gives a moshel, a moshel of a king who weaved a beautiful embroidery shirt, shirt for his beloved son. And the son wore the shirt a few times, and then he was negligent, and the shirt got torn. Came back to his father, and his father weaved a better shirt, an even more beautiful one. And again, the same thing happened. It got spoiled. So the third time, the king says to his son, this time I'm not going to, I'll weave the shirt for you, but I'm not going to give it to you. I'll show it to you once a year from a distance. So you learn to appreciate it. And then when I give it to you, it won't be torn again. It'll become a permanent shirt. He gives the example for the three, but the, the, the first base of Midrash, second one, which is Godliya covered Abayas Ha'achim Ma'arishin, it was stood ten, it stood, the first base of Midrash stood 410 years, the second one 420 years, it was larger, it was, it was more time that it stood and it was a larger base of Midrash, an even more beautiful one, but still, it was destroyed, it was torn. So this time, the Ebrish to every Shabbos Chazain shows us the base of Midrash from a distance. So you see here again the, the paradox. The simple interpretation of Chazen Yeshayo is the vision of destruction. So how suddenly does Levi Levitzah come and turn around and cause it the, the vision of, of rebuilding the base of Mikdash? So we already have the answer in the Gemara in Makis, the end of Masech Makis. There were also two visions. The visions of the friends of Rabbi Akiva, colleagues. They, they were looking at the Temple Mount and they saw a desolate wilderness. Sho'alim Helchimbe. They saw fox running to the place that was once the Holy of Holies. You can imagine the, the anguish to see such a thing, the tragedy. So the Rabbi Akiva's colleagues began to cry when they saw that. Why are they crying? Because they saw the fulfillment of the, 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 the negative prophecy. What would happen, the destruction, the desolation, the wilderness of the Temple Mount. Rabbi Akiva says, was smiling, was laughing. They asked him, why are you laughing? He says, because I see the fulfillment of the other prophecy that ultimately, when that will happen, that will lead to a better Beis Amidus, Beis Amidus, Ashlishi, Gula, Mitis, Vashlem. This was after the destruction of the second temple. So the Gemara concludes that his colleagues, Rabbi Akiva said, Akiva Nechamtoni, Akiva Nechamtoni. Twice. Akiva, you have consoled, you've, comfort, you've comforted us, you've comforted us. Why a double? Like, Nachamu, Nachamu? A double comfort, the comfort that Rabbi Akiva provided, and also the comfort of transforming the negative into the positive. So not just there'll be a base of but also the negative will lead to that. 
So you could see the vision. The vision of, there's a vision of destruction, but then when you look deeper, with deeper eyes, and Rabbi Kiva had deeper eyes because he came from a dark place. Till 40 years old, he had not learned Teda. Some say he was a ger, he was a convert. Some say a child of converts. The name Akiva itself, Akiv, the heel, signifying what is called the Elvis that Abnosin the Medr says, the heel is the Malacham of because it has the least amount of sensation. And that, like the Balchuva, can see what others can't see, can see light and darkness, can see the Hain within the love. That even when you say something negative, he sees the positive thing within it. The positive energy, the deeper sparks that can be redeemed even in desolation, even in a wilderness, even after destruction. So, you have here in Chazayin the central to similar theme. How does it relate to the Pasha itself? So the obvious is, right in the beginning of the Pasha, we see Teichacha. Even though it's not like in Pasha B'chukaisi and Pasha Kisove, which there, there are verses, 98 verses, Vodim, you don't have that amount, but you still have Techecha. Why? Because this is a time, it fits to the time of the nine days, the Shabbos before Tishabov. So there's that negative energy, but the negative energy is only for a positive, the Techecha, Techachas Musr, is in order to bring even more Chesed, as Chesedus explains. So there you too, you have that hint. But to go take it a step further, let's address a few questions that came in about the connection to the Parsha, and we'll see how the Parsha relates directly to the same themes. So, let's begin with the very, the very question, why is Devarim called Mishnah Teirah? So we know Midorim called Mishnah Teirah means a repeat of Teirah. Because this book is different than all the other books that came before this. You have Chamisha Chumshe Teirah, the first four books are Mepi HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we're told, the Gemara tells us. This is Mepi Moshe. So the first four books are written in the third person. Moshe, hearing from Hashem, is saying what he heard. Here, it's Moshe speaking in the first person, I. Because it's Mepi Moshe. Moshe is reviewing the events that happened and many of the mitzvahs that were told in earlier chapters. And we look at the chronology, you see it. What would we read in last week's chapter, yesterday? What did it conclude? Elamase. These are the journeys. The journeys of the 40 years, the 42 journeys that led them to the east bank of River Jordan. So actually when you finish Parsha Mase, where are the Jews? The Jews have finished their journey. They're ready to go into the promised land. So now what? Comes the next book. The entire book covers only a period of 37 days. The last 37 days. Starting from Rishchidosh Shvat till Zayin Adar. And Moshe reviews everything as they're standing on the east bank of the River Jordan. Moshe reviews the whole Teda and the mission and the purpose of their lives. These are the words that Moshe speaks. So, in the, in, so it's the whole theme of the book, the whole approach of the book, the language of the very book is different than the other four. It's still part of Hamisha Chum obviously. But we have to understand why. Why can't it be like the other four books where this book would be a continuation of the end? Why do we need another book where Moshe speaks? So one of the explanations Chassidus explains in Eira Teira and other places is because what's the purpose of Teira? 
Taylor Kane is given to us. To create Sholem in this world. We spoke before about Aaron. Oyev Sholem, Redev Sholem. What does Sholem mean? To create peace and reconciliation. I would say further, Yechud, Shem Echad, between divine and existence. That's what the Teda is here. As a blueprint for life, Hashem instilled himself in Teda, Anon Nafshik Sovis Yehovis Anoichi. Esi Atem Lechim. The Teda is God's wisdom and God's will, which is one with Hashem, as he explains in Tanya. And he gave that to the Jewish people that they should use this blueprint to transform this world and make it a Dira B'Tachtein. That's what Teda is. Now, any interface to be successful needs two parts. It needs to represent the divine and needs to represent the people. So Teda in general, Nosa from the highest levels, Shashrim, Lefonov, is God's delights in the deepest levels. And it comes down, it's Mislabish in a Seichel, and in mitzvahs, and in guidelines specific on Dibra Teda, Beloshem Adam. The Teda speaks the language of man. But in Teda itself, we therefore have like two so-called dimensions. There's the Teda coming, Mamayla Hashem speaking, and then there's Moshe, which is Hashem Shliach, of course, Moshe Avdi, that's speaking through his language. So, so in a way, Mishnah Teda is like a mamutza between the four books and Teda Shebaal Peh, and the oral Teda, which does is developed through the listeners, through the students. It also was given by Sinai, but it's far more also part of generated through the discussions and the, the arguments and counter-arguments and the different opinions of the, of the Tanoim and Amaroim and of the scholars and the sages. Mishnah Teir is like a Mamutza because it's Moshe speaking, but he's speaking the words of Hashem. In the language in Sfiris, Sefer Dvarim, Mishnah Teir is the level of Malchus. What is Malchus' role in Atzilus? Chabad Chagas Nehi Malchus in Atzilus is more of the divine. And they indeed represent the first four books. Malchus is the Mamutza. Malchus, the last level of Atzilus that becomes Keser of Biyah. Like Mishnah Teda is the interface between the first four books, with the higher levels of Atzilus, and bring them into Biyah in Misham Yeparad. In Alma de Prude, Biyar begins to represent the distinctions, the diversity of existence, even the separation and dissonance, and you want to create and bring the Teda into this world. Teda leba shamayimi, not to remain in heaven, but to come down, not in Zoh, shamayim, but to come down into Malchus and from Malchus into Biyah, all the way into El Gashmi, where you paskin Allah is dafka in this world. That's why it says, Neschoni boni natschoni, from a from a neshama beguf, a soul inside a body below, and Bezdin has the power. Even Mazidin, even Shegigin, they have the ability to pass good laws, and we have to follow those laws. So Mishnah Teda plays that interface, and that's why Mishnah Teda represents similar to where we are now in time. We read it always before Tisha B'av, because if you only had a Gilimomayla from above, and there was no connection wasn't dependent on our work the Beis Amish may still be standing but Hashem wants us to be part of it so it has to be an effort from below an effort from below also has the risk we can make the mistakes, we can have sinas chinam, God forbid and cause the other negative events that happened in the month of Av in the month of, or the end of Tammuz so that's why we read this Pasha because it captures both sides how the Tate is coming into this world where in this world there's a potential to go both directions. The goal is, obviously, is to use that opportunity to transform existence, 
But that's the point of Mishnah Teda and this. And so the next question someone asked is, if it was written, if Mishnah Teda is written by Moshe instead of Hashem, does it have the same divinity and holiness as the first book, four books of the Teda? So in some ways, absolutely yes. You know, you see a Sefer Teda, we don't see any distinction. Sefer Teda is from Breshis till Vezes Abrocha, from the Beis of Breshis to Eleini Kol Yisrael Lev, the letters Lev. That's one Sefer Teda. If anything is missing, even one letter, let alone the whole Sefer Mishnah Teda. So it's one Gedusha. But in some aspects, there is a level of Mishnah Teda is different, even in authority-wise. When you're talking about, let's say, something that says in a verse in the first four books, or one that says in Mishnah Teda, so there are different levels. Not God forbidden, it's Gdusha. Even every letter in Teda, as I said, equally holy. Even every letter, literally. But nevertheless, it is one step so-called below because it's coming through the lens and the perspective of Moshe Rabbeinu. Another question that was asked is this. We are taught that every word of the Tater is precise and there isn't even an extra letter unless it's purposely put there to teach us something. So why was it necessary for Moshe to repeat some stories laws, and laws and events and write them into the Tater again if they're already recorded into the Tater? What new lesson or teaching is Moshe giving us in Pasha's Dvarim? You could say in Sefer Dvarim even. So first of all, the general point we made was Moshe is drawing it further into, integrating it into our existence. In many ways, the various essence, why didn't Hashem just give us the Teda himself? Why Moshe Kibbal Teda Messinai? Because the same idea, you want the interface, you don't just want Teda, you want Teda to be manifest through a human being of flesh and blood who uses his mind and is a channel, a transparent channel at that. A transparent interface between Teda and existence, which is what Hashem essentially told Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai. When Moshe said, when Hashem was teaching him Teda and showing him the methodology, Mem Tes Ponim Toher, Mem Tes Ponim Tome, he showed him 49 arguments that something is impure, is pure. 49 arguments, it's impure. So Moshe asked Hashem, so which one is it? So Hashem answered, Achre Rabbim Lahatis. It will be determined by the consensus. Why make it so complicated? Just tell us what we should do, what we shouldn't do. Because Hashem wants a partner in existence. The partner is us, that we learn Teda, and we take the methodology, the divine methodology. Like we say every morning, the Yud Gimel Midrash Teda in the Baham, the 13 methodologies of how we apply Teda, how we teach Teda, Kal V'chemer, Teda Shava, Binyanav, and so on. So we're partners in the process because the point is to make a dira betachtenim. Not Hashem should build a dira. We should build a home for the divine in this world with the resources we were blessed with. Using teda as the blueprint and using mitzvahs as the tools and instruments. The That's why we need Moshe. That's why we need teachers. That's why we need these sages. They're aligned to what the teda wants. They're not independent in the sense that they go off, God forbid, off the reservation. They have to follow the guidelines according to the parameters and the misgeris and the infrastructure that Taylor provides us. But it still has to come through our effort. So the same idea is, um, with, the, is, is, is with the very essence of, the, of Mishnah Taylor. So that's in general what Mishnah Taylor adds. 
So, so yes, some things it repeats from before, but the repeat is now coming through the lens of Moshe Rabbeinu. So that's one general thing. Then there's specifics. There are many, many, many halachas that we learn specifically from a change, a shift, or a different way, or details that are presented, Dafke Mishnah Teir, that are not there in the first four books. Classic example. We know that Seres Adibris are repeated twice in the Teir. One in Parsha Yisrael, that's in the first four books. And one Moshe repeats it in Parsha Veschanon, that's Seres Adibris. And we see differences. For example, in the Parsha Yisrael, Zohar Esyem HaShabbos. In Parsha Veschanon, Shomer Esyem HaShabbos. Zohar Veshomer Dibarechot. So we see two aspects of Shabbos. So there are things that Moshe adds, nuances, emphasis, even new things that were not mentioned before. And probably if you do research, you could, you could even figure out how all of them are coming through the Memutza of Mishnah Teira. That's, that's a general addition. All these differences can be explained based on that principle that Mishnah Teira is the interface between the four books and Teira Shalapah and the rest, and all of us, actually. So it's one step closer of bringing Teira with it to, on the terms of existence, on the terms of the people. Whereas the first four books is more on God's terms. It's similar to an idea that everyone spoke about, beautiful Sikha, where it's actually one of the Giyud Gimel Midis. It talks about two verses that contradict one another. Then comes the third verse and reconciles between them. And one of the examples is given about where Hashem spoke to when he spoke in the Mishkan, did he speak where it says, did he speak from the Odin in the Holy of Holies? The voice came out from the top, from the cover on top of the Odin. Or does it say, he says sometimes that the voice came from Oyel Maid. So one verse says from the Odin, the Kedosh HaKadoshim and the Odin, and the other one it says from Oyel Maid. And Pasha, the end of Pasha Nose, it says that the voice came from the Odin and traveled through Oyel Maid. And that's the third verse that reconciles between the first two. So the obvious question that Rebbe asks is, and Rashi brings that there, why bring one verse that says this, another verse this, and then you have a contradiction, then you need a third verse to reconcile. Why doesn't the Torah Lechatechila just say one verse that Hashem spoke, the voice originated from the Un, from the Ark, and it traveled through the oil made, through the courtyard. So the Rebbe says, because the purpose of Torah is being a So you need something that represents that lakus part, more pure divine, which is what comes to Kedush HaKadoshim. Oyel Moed is more the voice as it relates to the people. So you need both verses because you need both dimensions intact. And then comes the Kosovo Shlishi, Tiferes, that says both are true. It's the union of Yehud and Yehud Tata, the divine from the perspective of the divine, from the perspective of us, like Mishnah Teda, and then the joining that they're really, really all one. Das Elyon and Das Tachlin become one. The perspective from above and the perspective from below. Okay. And one more question regarding the Pasha, and that is, what was the difference in the arguments of the Miraglim, the scouts, and the arguments of the two and a half tribes that wanted to settle outside the borders of Israel. The Meraglim were severely punished, and the two and a half tribes were not punished, but essentially they did the same thing wrong. 
they didn't obey Hashem's instructions and that we should enter and live in Eretz Yisrael. So the basic commentaries explain the difference pretty Pshutisha Mikra on a very basic level. That the Maraglim argued not to go into Eretz Yisrael altogether. And they incited the whole people not to go, to defy God, period. When it came to Bnei God and Bnei Ruven and Chetz and Bnei Shevet Menashe, they didn't say that. They said, we have a lot of cattle, and here the earth is very fertile, the fields. So give us permission to stay here. They didn't say, we can't go, it's Eretz Yisrael Shevet. They didn't defy God and say, no, we're not, we can't go into Eretz Yisrael, it's more powerful than us. It was still an issue. And that's why Moshe made a condition. And you see, they were that not only were not punished, he said, yeah, but what are you doing? You're forsaking us. We have to go to battle in Eretz They said, we will lead the battle. We'll join the battle. So you see that they were not trying to avoid going to Eretz There's even one sikha that Rebbe explains, he brings from Svarim, that's actually their hiskashos to Moshe, because Moshe ended up in that chalka, in that part. Moshe did not go into Eretz They wanted to be with their Rebbe. So it was a bitter, so to speak. In a way, it's connected to what we're discussing here. Eretz Yisrael represents like the first, first Sfarim Kedusha, like the Morris Machpela with the Ovisar and Oder Mechava and so on. Kever Rochel, on the other hand, is on the road, more associated with the people. Rochel Mavakal Banel, as Rashi explains in Pasha Vayechi, that Yaakov said to Yesu, that's where your mother wanted to be. She wanted to be close to her children. Similar to the, the idea that Yosef remained in Mitzrayim. Yaakov was asked to go back to Eretz Yisrael because Chassidus explains, because Yaakov is a Eretz Yisrael dekeid, Atzilus. Yosef is the Mamutza. Yosef Yisod goes into Malchus, into Atzil, into Biyah. So Yosef remains with, the, with his people. And they took the vow, the oath, that they, when they left here, they would take out that Tzomus Yosef. So Yosef gave them constant empowerment and hope that we would leave this place. Powerful sikhim, by Yechid Tovshim Amzayin. The Rebbe says the same thing with the Friedrich Rebbe, Yesuf Shebedereinu. Did not ask to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, remained in Golis with Id. So there's something about the, the, the two and a half Shvotim remaining there. So there's a very big difference between the two. So, in a sense, being Me'evrele Yarden also became an extension of transforming also Everle Yarden, the other side of the Jordan, to also become Magda Eretz Yisrael, also to become Eretz Yisrael Dik. So in a way, it was their additional effort, it was like an effort from below that expanded the boundaries of Eretz Yisrael. So it's connected again to the idea of Mishnah Teira and what we've been discussing until now. Okay, so we've covered the nine days, we've covered Shabbos Chazayin, Parashat Vodim. Let us now go to a bunch of individual questions which, um, and some follow-up as much as I'm able to do. I'll try to cover as much as I can here. How to deal with a spouse's zealotry. So the next section is actually a few questions that came in that are summer-related. They're related to the summer months, but questions that are clearly timely, but also have broader implications. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, my wife asked if we can escape the heat and humidity of the city and go to the country for Shabbos. We found an Airbnb rental near Monticello, and when we got there, the house and grounds were beautiful. Everything was great until my wife noticed a fountain in the garden with an Asian type of sculpture on it, and she decided it was a, an Aveda Zara, an idol, and said we are not allowed to stay here. 
I said, it's one hour until Shabbos, so we have to stay here because we won't make it back to Crown Heights before Lich Benching. Then my wife made a chil Hashem by calling the owner of the property and yelling at them that they must immediately come and remove the getchke. Getchke is a Yiddish word for idol. She said, we paid for a room and not for an idol, and she demanded a refund. I told my wife if she's going to act this way and be so hypersensitive to idolatry, then she needs to open her wallet and throw away her money because on the back of every dollar bill is an eye of Horus, which is an Egyptian of Edezara. My joke only inflamed her more, and she took it out on the poor woman who owned the property by repeatedly calling her and making abusive threats. I resolved the situation by covering the sculpture with a towel. How should I deal with my wife's zealotry in an, in an appropriate manner and be able to point out the times that she acts overbearing on issues that have no basis in halacha without making her more angry? Okay, interesting so firstly, I'm glad that you resolved it. A simple towel sometimes resolves everything. Why didn't you think of it in the first place without getting into the whole argument? I'm not here to criticize. Maybe it took time to get your bearings, but I'm glad that it was resolved that way. Look, the best way to deal with a situation like this is firstly, husband and wife should always be a yad achas, a partners in life, and resolve all issues together. Obviously, there will be times where there's disagreements and maybe even fundamental ones. But you always want to deal with it and many times you defer. Even if you may be right and your spouse is wrong, deferring doesn't hurt. But what about in a situation like this? Here we're talking about your wife is calling it a very disorder. It's a big statement. You feel it's not. So one of the ways to diffuse issues like this in general this is, goes both ways, whether it's the husband taking a position or the wife taking a position, is clearly, you, it seems like you're Hasidim. And in general, if, uh, Hasidim, Tere'idim. We have a Tere for all these things. We don't do things on our own. You call up a Rav, you call up a Mashpia, some with common sense, but also a strong idea and integrity and Tere and Hasidus. And you ask such a question. It's an hour to Shabbos. What do you do? So first of all, take it out of the realm of an argument between husband and wife. It's not between the two of you. And I'm not even getting into who's right and wrong. That's not the issue. Sometimes that's not what you should be focusing on. It doesn't matter what you may be right, but end up being, win a battle, you lose the war. So it's always best is to deflect it and defer to someone that's objective. Call, call a mashpia. That's why the Rebbe said, have a mashpia long before these questions come up. So you could always turn and let's hear what that person says. Be interesting to me, I must be able to tell you an hour before Shabbos, Airbnb, you're not going to find another Airbnb. What should you do? The Talsit solution, thank God. But that way you preempt many issues. I'm not saying it always will work because there are people who are headstrong and they don't want to talk to Mashpia. They think they know better. Well, there you have to come down to we all need humility whether it's the husband or the wife, each situation, that's how we stay away from becoming zealots and becoming over-extremists. Uh, over There's a tater. The tater tells us what to do in given situations. I recall that when Morristown bought the, the place, it was a monastery, and I think there were objects there that were not exactly kedusha. There were things like that. So they cleaned that out. But remember, having a gnaw from a place like that, it wasn't so simple. I was there. 
I remember there were locations that they didn't have the idols anymore there. But I think the Rebbe gave some directives, and there are ways to deal with these things. And that's a yeshiva for many people, and it's not just a summer, not just a weekend. So there are ways to deal with that. That's one general point. Um, overall, in these type of situations, you know, Shabbos especially is meant to be a Sholem Bayez time. That's why we light Shabbos candles. So I just want to say that there's nothing more sacred than having a husband and wife that are completely at harmony and peace. And even if there's disagreements, you have to know how to disagree with respect and never with cynicism. Yeah, it was a nice cop about the dollar bill, and I, I enjoyed it for a moment, but uh, yeah, sometimes that can antagonize and that can just inflame, and a person is already all worked up. To bring that is not usually helpful. So that would be good to say after a while, when all this gets diffused, you could bring that up. So I'd be careful when you start doing things like that. Just one foot, footnote to this discussion. Okay. So let's move from this question to, an, to another question, also somewhat related to summer. And um, and here's the question. Briefly, the question is, should I leave my shlichus due to a health threat of ticks? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, since this person wrote that knows no name, but it could be obvious who may be, but I hope I'm able to read it. I was not told not to read it, and I hope it doesn't expose anything. So I'll try to stay away from any specifics that may be revealing, but I'm reading it because it may be helpful to others as well. I'm a shliach in an upstate community. My wife wants us to leave the shlichus and move back to Crown Heights because we have a big problem endemic to our area with parasite insects called ticks that bite and spread Lyme disease. My initial response to her is we have, we have it easy up here compared to other shluchim. We're an hour from basically central Jewish neighborhoods, can buy all the kosher food we want. We can drive to Crown Heights within hours. Shluchim in some parts of the world have zero access to kosher food. Shluchim in Ukraine have to deal with danger of the war. We have it easy here. If you see a tuk, tick, just pull it off with a tweezer and move on. That strategy may have worked last year, when only once or twice a week we would find a tick. But this year the problem is more out of control because it's been warmer weather. In the past you could do your best to avoid ticks by not walking on grass or in the forest where they prefer to congregate. But this season they are everywhere and unavoidable. We have found them in our beds, in our car, etc. Every day, we are pulling dozens off our kids. We are afraid to let the kids play outside, and we are making them feel like prisoners under house arrest. Even if we check ourselves every day before getting dressed, some of them are so tiny, we can accidentally not see them. We can't use pesticides on our lawn because our water comes from a well, and the chemicals can seep into the well and make the water dangerous to drink. We don't know, nor do our neighbors know, a solution to solve, solve or lessen the problem. I don't want to quit because I would be embarrassed to walk into 770 and have my peers point at me and say he's a coward that quit. And besides, for my own ego, I love everyone in my community and wouldn't want to quit on them. But I also love my family, and it hurts me to see them to be so uncomfortable. My wife was crying today and said, why would the Rebbe send us here? That hurt me so much to see her, her, her hysterical like that. 
I can only answer her with the Torah that says Hashem creates the cure before the disease and that Hashem doesn't give someone a problem they don't have the strength to overcome. This insect problem is adversely affecting me too. When I have an appointment to meet a bala boss and I show up a half hour late because when I get into my car I saw ticks crawling on the, on the seat and I stop to vacuum them before they bite me, I feel like a clown for being late and I lose the confidence I need to go into the meeting and ask him for everything we need. When I'm late to give a class because on my way, my wife calls and says, a three-year-old has a tick inside her ear and she needs me to turn around and come home right away to help get it out. And at a summer camp with 150 kids, we spend more time pulling ticks over the kids than doing camp activities. And I'm afraid if the parents knew how severe the problem was, they would pull their kids out of camp and perhaps even sue us. Chaz God forbid. My inclination is not to quit and try to endure this with the Rebbe's brachas. And with Hashem's help, nobody in my family or our community will get any of the debilitating diseases caused by the ticks. But I need my wife and myself to be on the same page in order to have Shalom Bayes and in order to represent the Rebbe and do our job successfully. Please advise with your opinion on what we should do. And since it is my desire to try and stay and not quit, how can I speak to my wife and make sure she's comfortable with our decision? If me and her talk, and we both decide and agree that it's in the best interest of our, amazing, of our amazing community that we stay. Thank you. Okay. I can't say this is an easy question to answer. I'll just share my own thoughts. But my thoughts are just that, thoughts. And um, on one hand, we know the Rebbe, probably in every circumstance, when South Africa was in danger, Russia was in danger, the Rebbe never believed that we retreat meaning no, nothing can stop us. We have to do our shlichus and the will protect us. But here we have the additional issue of pekuach nefesh, really. When I say pekuach nefesh, it may not be life and death, mamish, but it's almost, it's health. We're not just talking about difficulties under the Soviets or under dire circumstances or crime, things that can turn around. This is dangerous. Like you have 150 kids and the parents don't know that's Geneva's Das, and who knows what that can lead to. So that's why I'm just weighing the two sides. I don't have a quick, a quick answer. It's hard for me to say that the Rebbe would say that at least for a time period you should leave. I could see the Rebbe saying, speaking to experts, because at the end of the day, this is a shayla, not just halachic shayla, it's also a health shayla. Maybe you have to speak to doctors. You did the mumchim. I could see the Rebbe suggesting that. I can't say for sure, no one can speak for the Rebbe, but it could be the Rebbe would say that because of these circumstances. You're dealing with children. It's not just yourself. So I don't want to paskin here and say I know for sure what you should do, but there's no question that you can't just be light about it. You can't just say, gung-ho, that will be protected, shluchim mitzvah in the nezokin, shluchim of the Rebbe, the Rebbe will protect us because the bottom line is ticks are dangerous. And they can cause tremendous problems and long-term problems, God forbid, Rahman al-Islam. So I would, I would advise, Chua Bereviyeh, I would ask your mashpim. I'm happy to weigh in, you know, and hear what others say. My leaning is probably, at least when these ticks are in such season, where it's so extreme that you probably should take off, during, especially during the summer months, because of the danger involved. Question is whether the winter will bring the same thing when things cool off meaning when the weather gets cooler. So I would lean toward probably saying, and I say probably because I have to think about it more, being very honest, 
that probably during this time of high season with this, where there's such an uh, infestation that you have to first deal with that infestation. But like living in a house that's infested. No one's asking that, that, that can't be your shlichus in an infested house. The problem is the whole area is infested. There's nowhere you can go. So the question is if that's an option, that for a few summer months, maybe things you can go there for yourself for a Shabbos or something like that, but not to put your family and, and especially others in danger because you're dealing with kids in camp. The fact that they're in your camp is beautiful, but maybe it has to be, they have to go to another camp where there isn't that problem because at the end of the day, if even one child gets it and the word gets out that you didn't do what you had to do, you could cause far more damage for over the next years. Who's going to send their children to your camp? So my leaning would be that this, this period you probably should lay low, meaning maybe move out for the summer and find a place where you don't have this problem. To, even if you can convince your wife to go along and stay, she's a, she's a mother. And, and your father, obviously, you also care. But it's not about persuading her. It's not about forcing her. It's not about convincing her. It has to be bedarke neem, bedarke shalom. And because of the circumstances, it, it just seems to me it's too dangerous. You're dealing with a dangerous situation. It would be like, God forbid, in Chernobyl, when there was that nuclear, uh, nuclear accident, to say to live there, because there's a shlichus, it's dangerous. Posh pekoach nefesh. I just can't see that shlichus overriding pekoach nefesh on that level. Again, I'm not talking about pekoach nefesh of Soviets or, or uh, the Efsekzia. We're talking about pekoach nefesh of direct health issues and so on. So that would be my suggestion. But as I said, I'm saying it with qualification because I'm not a Rebbe. Just trying to put together everything. And I'm sure the Rebbe would probably say, well, I'm sure, the Rebbe would, I, I go back to, I think the Rebbe would say, the Didim Avinim, who understand the situation, because that's what you do in situations like that. But who knows? The Rebbe could give the Kaychas and Brachas that it shouldn't affect. But remember, it's not just you, it's also all the families and other children involved. But I appreciate the question. I think it's a critical one to address. And Hashem should bless that that, that that infestation should disappear and you'll be able to do the shlichas besimcha betul levav without any concerns, only in positive ways. Why did Hashem create mosquitoes? <laughs> Seems like an interesting segue. I, I'm smiling. It's not really a smiling matter. I have a recollection that the Alter Rebbe mentions mosquitoes in Tanya by saying evil people get their sustenance after the mosquito. But what exactly does that mean? Does Hasidus teach what their purpose is? So a yitush, a mosquito, an insect, they're insects that are called machnes ve'enemotzi. They take, but they don't give. That's called a parasite. They suck your blood, but they don't give anything back. If anything, they give you back only pain or infection or worse. So it isn't klipa. That's what klipa is. An aluka, sometimes called a leech. Same idea. What does klipa do? Clip is about me, 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 have, have, take, I take, 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 it's all about me. Aniva afsiate. And nothing in return, which makes it even worse. At least give something back. Kedusha is the exact opposite. It's meitzi ve'enemachnis. Real Kedusha is total bitl. It's only giving. Amashpia is giving. Doesn't take anything back. He doesn't need anything back. Sometimes you get back, obviously you get this, the tamidei yesim mekulam. The nachas, the, the insights, the depth that you receive from your students. 
that more than the owner or the giver gives, is giving to the receiver, the receiver is giving to the giver. But that's not the intention. That's part of the process of give and take. So Gdush is about giving. Klip is about taking, and especially in this case. So the question, of course, then is stronger. Why did God create mosquitoes? So first of all, to be a lesson to us to see. So we have a living example of what it means when something's a parasite. Second of all, like the story with David HaMelech, he asked why a spider. He didn't understand the value of a spider until he saw a spider save his life. Mosquitoes are part of God's plan too. So in addition to this element of learning about parasites, they play a role. Mosquitoes do carry, do carry like cross-pollination from one to another. Yes, they can cause viruses and they can cause other problems, but to say a mosquito doesn't have any benefit in nature, you look any nature, look up any understanding of mosquitoes, they play a role in nature. They have a, a certain ugly side to them. So those would be the two main reasons that we, uh, that why God created mosquitoes. I need to look up what the benefits of mosquitoes are, but I'm sure they have a benefit in nature, and they serve a role. And let's see, I'll look it up and I'll give, come back with that more. Or if somebody has any information on that, please let me know, and I'll share it. Okay. Let's see what else we can cover here. So let's ask, let me do a follow-up, two follow-ups. One was regarding narcissism. And one regarding Gimel Thomas. Gimel Thomas is a lot of follow-up, but I'll try to cover each week another item. So let's start with the narcissism. Hi. I'm, re- I'm reaching out because I feel like I, I reached a dead end. I'm married and I live in Israel. However, my husband is currently living in Miami. He left a year and a half ago because he said it was financially difficult for him in Israel. The issue is that as of last year, this time in the summer, I flew to Miami to spend the summer there with him and our two daughters. I have an older married son in Miami with whom he had a good relationship with until last summer. Out of the blue, he became extremely angry with him and stopped talking to him. And he doesn't allow me to speak to him. Altogether, we have five children, He told the rest of our four children, whoever speaks to my son in Miami, the rest of us are in Israel except my husband, not to speak to him. He also stopped talking to his sister in San Diego because she interacts speaks with my son. He seems to have narcissistic traits. He is cutting everyone out of his life. He seems very depressed, and I feel like my hands are tied. He wants me to move to Miami to be with him, but I feel that Israel is the best place for my 12-year-old daughter. She is happy in school and has good friends, thank God. When he doesn't get his way, he loses it. He blames my son for all his problems and often curses him and wishes him dead, which breaks my heart. He sometimes threatens to hurt him to me. I'm not sure if he's capable of it or, or... or not, but seeing him in his rage, last Rosh Hashanah, I am sometimes skeptical. My question is how to act with him. Do I give in to him and go there against my will? I want to be here because I see he only needs me to be there for him, meaning cooking, cleaning, help with work, etc. We don't really have a relationship because I don't confide in him or tell him anything of relevance or importance. I feel that if I do, he judges me and then uses it, then, then uses it against me sometimes in the future. My kids all want me to divorce him and live my life, but I feel obligated to him to help save him. I don't think he's open for therapy. He definitely doesn't listen to me. His attitude is more of my way or the highway. 
I'm torn between helping him and helping myself to maintain my sanity and peace of mind. Sorry for the long letter. Kind regards. Okay, well, it pains me. My heart goes out to you. Being I don't know all the details, only with that which you write, but what you write is, gives me enough to say the following. So first of all, this is not something that can be just resolved in a program like this. You need to speak to a professional. Because what it sounds like to me is you're not helping him at all. You know, if you think you are, give it a time period and see if you do. It's very clear that you may be trapped in that place called where you're enabling and almost codependency, what they call, because you're not helping him. And I agree, just to go there, because that's what he wants, you know, and it'll just make things worse. If he's not ready in any way to be giving, like you describe, a narcissist, a parasite in a way, that can only bode negative things. So based on what you're writing, without me knowing more, I would say you need to come up with a real game plan, with a real ultimatum. Either he lives up to certain things. The way he's treating your children, not speaking to the son, blaming others, is all the signs of someone that is, needs a lot of help. If he's not ready to go for help like you write therapy, he's not ready to live up to any conditions, then I think you have to think very strongly of this is over. Because there's nothing coming, nothing positive. What benefit is there right now? What are you holding out for? That he's suddenly going to wake up one day? He needs to be read the riot act. He needs to understand their consequences for such behavior. Now again, this is barring maybe there's something I'm missing I don't know altogether. Definitely do not hear him. You always want to hear all angles here, and I have to say that. Not because I question what you said here, but just because that's the way it is. I'll be telling you, you need to hear all the angles of it. But there's also the possibility that you're trapped in this codependent type of place where the known evil is better than the unknown, so you just keep the status quo. Is it good for you and your family? Doesn't sound like it to me. So I would strongly advise speaking to a mashpia, someone you trust, a therapist, someone good, competent, especially someone that can speak to him as well, and look at the options. But don't let it just hang. This is not going to resolve itself. That I can tell you for sure. You need to make a move. One way or another, if everyone advises, move to Miami and give it time and see if we can work things out and he becomes better, by all means. But if the answer is no, that's not the, the solution, it only it may things, make things worse or just confirm that it's not working, then I think you have to follow. You can't just follow your own whims and your own comfort, even if it's your own discomfort, but, the, but it basically is the status quo. That's my general response to that. Let me do one more on the issue of narcissism regarding last week's episode dealing with narcissism. You spoke about this at 44.20. That's 44 minutes and 20 seconds. One must be very careful with how we associate mental illness and personality disorders with religious and spiritual development and or deficiency. It's essentially saying that someone who has a heart attack is because he doesn't put on tefillin or someone who suffers from a skin disease is because of talking evil. Although we know from teachings of our sages and stories of the Rebbe that illness is associated with spiritual deficiency, etc., the ramifications of a layman suggesting those is destructive and damaging to the people being impacted, manipulated, and abused as well. As, for those not seek, as, as well as for those not seeking per proper help and seeking spiritual help instead. This is even more hazardous than with mental illness where one can be easy, where one can easier to, when one can easier associate 
with, one can easier associate it with less tangible effects and symptoms as opposed to a physical illness that can be measured by medicine and science. The answer to narcissistic disorder might not be bitter, being that they tend to believe that they are humble and a victim, especially a vulnerable narcissist, which is an invisible disorder and has a much more devastating effect. Which is like, Shemai saying, They behave like Zimri and they want reward like Pinchas. These are people who destroy the world. is this person quoting. It takes years to detect and comprehend. They are in the deepest denial and dissonance. A true narcissist will never open up to the fact. I suggest you take the time to educate yourself in cluster B personality disorders. There is using the word narcissist and there's the bona fide disorder. The distinction needs to be made as well. Please read the DSM-5 on the personality disorder. It could stem from childhood abuse. These issues could be addressed, should be addressed. Thank you for bringing it up to the open with total disclosure of the scholar that they are extremely limited in that field. The people around narcissist behavior suffer a terrible hell on earth on a daily basis, a living hell that is hard to comprehend for the average person. It's a life of suffering and abuse which has no end in sight. Yes, this should be brought to the open as support is direly needed, but with a deep and profound understanding of the limitations of someone not exclusively in the field. Spouses, narcissist survivors need help from with fellow survivors and real mental health practitioners that specialize in narc abuse. This is less the place for a mashpi as far as treatment and therapy and support similar to someone suffering a heart attack where you call 911 and the doctor first. One needs to be very careful with giving empathy and feeling sorry for a narcissistic personality disorder, cluster B. It has the opposite effect. They thrive off it. Those who are suffering from being married with people who have disorders need empathy for themselves, need to be as selfish as possible through that. There could be some relief and, could be relief and healing. Some links on the subject. Anybody interested in the links, if you send us a, a, your email in uh, the forum at chassidusapplied.com. I'll be happy to offer it, uh, the links. Thank you for writing. With all respect, I don't know who you are. You're not giving your name. Um, I, I guess you're alluding to that you see me either naive or this mashpia you're referring to, or a scholar or a mashpia, you know. Well, I'm not here to toot my horn, but I will say this, um, just for the record. Many specialists in these disorders actually come to me for advice. Again, this is not to toot my horn, but I would assume you'd know that. I have tremendous experience with this, dealing with it on many levels, dealing with professionals, and, um, uh, and I stand by what I've said. Yes, it does come down to Bittl, in my opinion. Whether a narcissist could have Bittl is another discussion. If he could bring real Bittl, that would be good. Now, the idea of empathy for the narcissist, if you recall, I didn't say one should have empathy for the narcissist. I said the Rebbe Rashab said, look how much Rachmanus you have to have for someone that the Torah says you shouldn't have empathy. The point is we have empathy. That doesn't mean that we show that empathy to feed the narcissist. So if you go back to what you... So I understand that you may be stereotyping some rabbis or some naive or inexperienced people, and you're entitled to do so. There are people who shouldn't address this issue. But as I said, I stand by what I've said. If you have a specific thing that I've said that you feel that you disagree with, you want to take issue with, by all means, but not just sweeping terms determining who's a professional. There are many people with professional degrees and, uh, and uh, credentials that don't know how to deal with it properly. And there are many that don't have credentials that deal with it excellently. 
When I say excellent, I don't mean they always solve it, but they know how to deal with it in a very blunt way. And uh, this is not the first time I've spoken about this. There are many times I've spoken on this topic. And uh, unfortunately, it's a real issue. Some of the things you say I totally agree with, but I think it's important that you should also not get trapped in the stereotyping of the people you think may not be experts when maybe they are experts. So let's all be productive here, looking to help the situation. Again, anything specific you want to bring up, by all means. Okay. And with that, I will now sign off. We'll conclude with this. Um, this has been My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 458. May these days be transformed completely to joyous days with the coming of Geula, especially as we learn Chassidus and apply Chassidus to life, even to some of the darker and uglier corners and shadows of life. Especially in these days, which will rebuild the base Hamidrash, with the coming of Mashiach and the Geula Hamitis Vashleim. Thank you and be well. It should be a very simcha dikechedish of transformed into sustenance simcha meidim tevim. This program is brought to you by My Life Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com/donate.